Dana and Richard and Quinn and Laura. Thank you to our musicians. Dave Oxenham, sorry, I didn't want to forget you and your glorious male ponytail. That's really nice. <coughs> there he is. <coughs> Little uh, language lesson, first off. Secor is Latin for to slice. Sika, not Zika, the tiny baby head thing, but Sika is a short sword or a long dagger that could easily be concealed in a man's cloak. So, Sekor, Sika, you see how those are related, connected? Well, the Sikari, these are the coolest guys ever, were the dagger men, a group of secret assassin zealots who would find public venues like marketplaces or festivals where they would mill about smartly and launch coordinated murders of the Roman overlords of Jerusalem, but also the Greek, I'm sorry, the, the Jewish people who were beginning to adopt the Greco-Roman life and system. So they would kill the Romans and they would kill the, 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 the liberal um, wealthy Jews, right? So the Sicarii would hang around and they would come up behind them the way the um, Sika knives are curved they could quickly it, it was made to go up under the rib and pierce the the heart or the veins and arteries connected to it um, and they could remove it the person would have a difficult time screaming because the lung was punctured and the heart was uh, not working anymore and they would fall down, and everybody would scream, and the, they would run, and, and the, the Sicarii could meld right back into the crowd. And they, these Sicarii predate the Muslim Hashishin, which is where we get that word assassin from, and they even predate the Japanese ninja. So a lot of, this is very sexist comment, which I recognize, but a lot of the women are, remain unconcerned about such things. But the men in the room right now are completely enraptured by this. <laughs> and and it, I recognize that how inappropriate that is, and I apologize. But we love a good spy. We love the idea of assassinations. It's just weird. Um, but the Sicarii were embedded terrorists. They were completely indistinguishable from common society. And ever since I first read about the Sicarii when I was in seminary, I want a movie made about them, and I want it to star Tom Cruise because I want there to be running in it. And I think he's a good runner. And I think it's a compelling story as well. Early Jewish historian Josephus wrote the following at the end of the first century. Those deeds of the robbers filled the city with all sorts of impiety, and now conjurers and deceivers persuaded the multitude to follow them into the wilderness and pretended that they would show them manifest wonders and signs that would be performed by the providence of God. And those that were deceived suffered the pain of their folly, for Felix brought them back and punished them. At this time there came out of Egypt to Jerusalem a man who said he was a prophet and advised the multitude of the common people to go along with him to the mountain called the Mount of Olives, 
which lay a distance of five furlongs from the city. So a little over half a mile is five furlongs. He said that he would show them that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall down, through which he promised that he would procure them an entrance into the city. And Felix was informed of this. He ordered his soldiers to take up their weapons and a great number of horsemen and footmen from Jerusalem. He attacked the Egyptian and the people that were with him. He slew 400 of them and took 200 alive, but the Egyptian himself escaped from the fight and did not appear anymore. And again, the robbers stirred up the people to make war with the Romans. That's what Josephus wrote about the Sicarii. Now the Sicarii, this group, they, they scatter because of Felix's persecution and they regroup and they continue to create trouble for the Romans. So much so that when Rome falls in 74, it's because of this group, because of this group of assassins. The Romans, they, they take the city back, the Sicarii do, and, and Rome, it makes it all the way to Rome and Caesar basically says, that's enough. We're, everything, everybody dies now, and they come back, and they tear the temple down, and they kill the people and scatter them again. And that takes us to our passage this morning, connected to the enormous rectangle of the temple complex is the Antonia Fortress. It's a citadel on one corner of the temple complex, and it housed up to a thousand Roman soldiers. Last week, a Jewish mob took to beating the Apostle Paul and created such an uproar that the Romans came out of that Antonia fortress and they intervened to save Paul. We pick up the story as they are about to bring Paul from the temple complex to his safety in their fortress. Okay, so that's where we're at. You have the setup. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ from Acts chapter 21, verse 37, through about half the chapter of 22. This is the word of the Lord. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. 
As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, well, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste. And get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come as hungry sheep into this rich pasture of your word. Would you, as our good shepherd, lead us and bid us to eat our fill of this good news of Jesus Christ? Would you cause the flock of your folds to be built up, to, to grow, to be blessed as you protect us? Would you call others to come in through the gate? And we ask that you would soften our hearts, unstop our ears, and open our eyes to the beauty and wonders of Christ this morning in your word. It's in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit we ask. Amen. So if you ever want to get sucked down a rabbit hole of oddity, Google the, rela uh, the relationship between language and culture. It's a fascinating uh, field of study. Linguistics shape the human brain. And so if you take uh, someone who speaks a certain language, whether it's a phonetic language, like uh, one of many of the Asian languages, or, or something like English, French, Spanish, the Romantics, the human brain is actually wired by how we learn to communicate. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And I studied uh, that uh, for about 20 minutes before I realized I don't understand the words that these people are using. But I think I see where they're pointing. Um, the academic studies have established this symbiotic relationship of the spoken word and the shared values of a society. And so think about this. 
language, culture. Think about you go to um, a restaurant. <clears throat> I, I, love, uh, I love all sorts of food, Exhibit A. Uh, but we love Mexican food in particular. I'm a Texan. My wife's a Californian. We, our kids have eaten more Mexican food than any other kind of food in their life. Um, and I speak a little bit of Spanish uh, from growing up in Houston and then working uh, at a restaurant while in seminary. You get to speak a little Spanish. And I have certain phrases that I can say pretty clearly and sometimes the, the server at a restaurant, Casa Tequila is a perfect example, will come by and I will say something in Spanish and they will immediately assume, oh, this is a gringo that knows Spanish. And it will deputize them to just throw all sorts of words at me at 30,000 miles an hour. And I go, no, no, that's all I know. <laughs> I just told you all of my Spanish. Todos libros, hombre. Um, so think about that feeling when you sit down and you, or you ask a question of someone who's of a different uh, culture than you and they respond back in a language that you, you don't comprehend. Doesn't that make you feel anxious? Don't you feel like, oh, uh, I'm an American. Maybe if I say my English louder, you'll understand it. <laughs> Where is the bathroom? Um, <laughs> but flip that. Flip that on the other side. Uh, imagine that you are the one in the minority culture. Maybe you're, you're traveling, and you have a need that you need answered, and you, all you know is your, your language, and you're asking sort of, you know, maybe in an emergency situation. Seriously, where is the bathroom? Things are getting very real here. And the person that you're asking doesn't have the ability to receive your question, right? This is a... Language shapes us more than, than we're aware. Um, the inability to clearly communicate across linguistic divides means some cultural boundaries never get crossed. And so if this gospel has to go to the ends of the earth like Jesus says, we need bold and intelligent women and men to, to immerse themselves and devote themselves to the study of languages, to the study of cultures. I think of CPC's own Doug and Masha Shepard. They will, at least Doug will be here next week and give a word of testimony. But Doug has been in Ukraine ministering and serving for almost 20 years. I think of Kevin and Julie Calcote out of this congregation who we sent to Dallas to work at Wycliffe Bible Translations, and they've been there for many, many years. And Wycliffe studies this very thing to get the gospel into linguistically appropriate languages that can travel the world. And I think of Paul standing here, beat to a bloody pulp as a Jew speaking Greek to the tribune. The rank of tribune was one of very high distinction. He was above the centurion. He was a trained writer, and he was likely to end up in the Roman Senate after his military service. It's fairly obvious with the earlier background that when he snatched Paul up, he thought he was capturing this Egyptian Sicarii leader who had recently escaped the failed plot. He 
the, the tribune thought this guy came back, he got recognized by some of the Jews who, who, who got tricked into following him, and now they're trying to take their, exact their revenge. And so when Paul speaks Greek to him, he not just clears up the confusion of his identity, he smooths over some cultural wrinkles. And so notice that Paul makes no demands about his rights or about how he's been wronged. Paul makes a simple request. He clarifies his position, and then he waits to hear the response. Paul does something similar to the violent mob. To them, he speaks, the text says, in the Hebrew language. Now, if your Bible has a little note there, and you look at the bottom, it says it's most likely Aramaic. Everyone that I read pointed that out, that the Hebrew language was most likely Aramaic. And that crowd was already hushed when they heard him address them in Hebrew, but 22.2 says, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they, they became even more quiet. Taking the time to learn someone's language and culture communicates that they have value and that you have something in common with them. And so in both instances... Simply by speaking his enemy's language, Paul brought peace into confusion. And even more than that, beyond the specific vocabulary words that he said, he said the words in ways that communicated he was aware of the nuance of the cultures associated with those languages. So to the Roman tribune, he showed a sense of calm, he showed deference to his status, and he spoke what he spoke in the staccato clarity associated with the Roman military. But to the Jews, he tells a lengthy story going back to his own birth long ago in a land far away. Is that, you see the difference there? To the Jews, he tells a story because they are people of stories. To the, to the Roman, he just says what needs to be said, and he waits patiently for the man in charge to make his ruling. That communicates that he understands how the system works, how the people function together. Now, I came across a song, this has been months ago, that I thought was a parody of modern country music. I love country music. Eastland, a couple weeks ago, uh, used the illustration of the new uh, documentary, Ken Burns' documentary on country music. It's awesome, 16 hours. I've watched it twice and a half already. It is amazing. I love good old country music. The modern stuff, not so much. But that's me. You have your own preferences, bad as they may be. Um, <laughs> but I came across this song that I thought was a parody, but it's actually not. Um, the song is titled Rednecker. <clears throat> And it's filled with things that only silly rednecks would ever brag about. My town's smaller than your town. I got a bigger buck and bass on my wall. My truck's louder than your truck. I fish where I swim. You might think that you're redneck, but I'm rednecker than you. And it's hilarious, and it's awesome. And it, talk about Jeremy's earworm. That thing will rattle around in my brain. Now, I make fun of that, but the dude has over 6 million views on YouTube, so he's at least richer than me. 
rednecker and richer. But that's the absolute best illustration of how Paul opens his story to his Jewish audience. He's out-Jewing them. You might think that you're a good Jew. I'm way Jewier than you're a Jew. I'm educated. I'm strict. I was zealous. I persecuted in prison. I even killed him. This is a masterful move on Paul's part because, again, he's showing them he understands more than vocabulary. He understands their worldview. Paul is only in Jerusalem because he's been constrained by the Spirit. He's been captured and convinced that this is right where God wants him. But don't miss this little beautiful tidbit. Heartfelt, deep love for his countrymen. Paul may be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he's a proud Jew. I am an apostle to the Oki, but I'm still a proud Texan. I want all of you people saved, but I want all the Texans to be saved too. And there's a lot more of them than you. Now, this is what Paul says in Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And Paul may be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he loves his Israelite kinmen. He loves them. He longs for them. The, what he says is, I wish I could go to hell that they might come to Christ. He loves his people. In chapters 22 through 26 are filled with a series of trials and defenses. Now, it's a fun point of study that would provide you further proof that Paul can function very well in either the Jewish or Roman systems. Now, prior to chapter 20, there were certainly speeches and many sermons in Acts, but they were more like deliberations. But from chapter 22 on, the speeches take a more forensic or trial format. One helpful writer put it this way, the speeches in Acts and the narrative of Acts work together to achieve the rhetorical aims of the author in regard to persuading his audience about matters he deems important. So he's, the, this, this commentator says, Luke uses the speeches and the stories in Acts to prove what he's saying. And if he's right, the speeches and the stories are working together to convince us of what's most important. And so here's the question. If you found the same story told three different times in three distinct contexts, don't you think that that story is probably near the top of what's most important? And that's what we have in the story of Paul on his way to persecute the church in Damascus. And God displays the glory of the risen Christ to him and blinds Paul. And in that moment, 
Paul is knocked off of his donkey and blinded, and he has this beautiful interaction with the risen Christ. And that's, that story is told three times, chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. Union with Christ is the most important topic of theology. Union. Union again. Now, I got to just was the, the way the Lord's providence came and went. I preached this in uh, uh, Acts chapter 9 as well. Um, the story of Paul's surprise visit from Jesus is told three times. The first time in chapter 9, like I said, is Luke's retelling of what he heard from Paul to help convince the Jews of his change of heart. And the second time here in 22, this is Paul's retelling. It's the first time we actually hear it from the lips of Paul. It's the most pro-Jewish of the accounts. And then in chapter 26, Paul is before the Roman king of the province of Judea. And so this retelling, the one in 26, is the most pro-Greek. And there are little differences, little emphases with each. But one question is the same in all three accounts. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that's asked by the risen Christ to Paul. And if we stop and think about timelines, we figure out that Paul and Jesus never cross paths. And in, in his earthly ministry, um, Jesus, we don't see any interaction with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with Christ in his earthly ministry, and Paul the apostle who's persecuting, or Saul the pre-apostle who's persecuting the church, never persecutes Christ. It's asked by Jesus to Paul, but Paul and Jesus had never met beforehand. So how could Paul be persecuting Jesus? How's that even possible? It's only possible because of union with Christ. In his letter to the Galatian church, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's union with Christ. In the death of Christ, if you are in him by faith, there is your death. You have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer you who lives, but Christ living in you. That reality is what it means to be a Christian. Paul never got over union with Christ. He never, he never got through with Christ telling him, I'm the one you're persecuting. You kill these brothers and sisters, you enslave them, you're killing me, you're enslaving me. For Paul, that understanding that Jesus is so connected to his people that when we hurt, he hurts. As he dies, we died. In his resurrection, we have been risen to new life. That union with Christ defined everything else in Paul's ministry. If that's not enough, think back to Christ as he is finishing his earthly ministry. He tells a parable in Matthew 25 about entering glory. As those who've cared for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the imprisoned. What the correct response to those should be by people of faith. And in Matthew 25, 39, those disciples listening to Jesus, he, they, 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 he, he has them saying this. Now when did we see you a stranger and welcoming him. 
And verse 30 is his response, terrifying, sobering response. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It is in and through Christ, the crucified and risen king, that God identifies with his people. It is in and through Christ that God identifies with his people. And then maybe one of the, the most densely uh, packed uh, with, with beauty and wonder passages in all of scripture is the Lord's Prayer, the high priestly prayer of Christ in John chapter 17, right before he goes to make his sacrifice. Listen to verse 22 and 23 of John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now that, I don't feel glorious most of the time. I don't feel like the risen Christ standing in front of Paul, but that's what he says. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you sent me. Union with Christ is the linchpin to the entire reality of the Christian message. I have a hard time believing it. Can you believe that? I in them and you in me. What that means is we are caught up into the eternal life of our triune God. Everything that a perfectly holy, just, powerful, and good father believes of his absolutely beautiful, obedient, willing, and kind son, every bit, every drop, every ounce of overwhelming joy in Jesus belongs, every bit of it, to you. In Christ. Everything that God the Father thinks of his perfect son, he thinks of you in him. And there is no, I have nothing else to offer you than that. That's all we have. But boy, is it a lot. He's so overcome with joy and delight at the thought of you that your father runs out to meet you. He can't stop blessing you. He feasts with you, and he dances at the first sound of your singing. This is your God. Oh, how desperately we need to believe that, to receive and rest on Christ, this Christ, as he's offered to us in the gospel, to see that in him, the life of Holy Trinity by the Spirit becomes our life. Union with Christ sets us free from shame and regret, and it also banishes every hint of self-justification because it situates us in Christ, the justifier, the one who is at work building his church. It moves us, union with Christ does, to follow and reflect him more and more wherever he leads us, and he leads us. He leads us. God leads his people he knows where he's going, and he knows what he's doing. God knows exactly what he's doing. Paul had the crowd tracking with him, still in a hush, intently focused on his tail, until one word, ethne. Now that's Greek, but you can probably figure out just from the sound of it, 
ethne, ethnic nations. Ethne is Gentiles. Ethne actually is the word for the nations, but it came to be just called the Gentiles. So there's this old joke that kind of helps here. Um, there's three kinds of people in this world. Those who can count and those who can't. Put that one in your YouTube channel, Richard. Um, it's a fine summary of the Jewish mindset in Jerusalem in Paul's era. There are Jews and there are non-Jews and there's nobody else. You're either like me and on my team with Yahweh or to hell with you. I don't care. You're evil, you're vile, you're gross, you're unclean. And that's it. And the outrage of these triggered snowflake Pharisees is really moving more into next week's passage. But we do need to see that part about the nations and remember that it's already been mentioned. Ethan read it for us today. It's a direct quote of Isaiah 49, but it's already been mentioned in Acts as well, Acts 13, 47. It was always, always God's plan to have his people spread over the face of the world as his image-bearing reflectors of eternal glory. It was always God's plan to see himself in multitude of various faces and smiles and men and women, different colors, different languages, but all reflecting his glorious wonder and despite the idolatries of Adam and Eve, despite tipsy Noah, despite doubting Abraham, daft Isaac, and deceptive Jacob, despite Moses' temper tantrum and Israel's repeated failures, despite David and Solomon's insatiable lust, despite the racism of Jonah, despite the sacking of both Israel and Judah, despite you and despite me, God has a beautiful worldwide bride who continues to, through her faithfulness, shine his light into the darkness. And Paul heard from Jesus that the Jews in Jerusalem wouldn't accept his change of heart and that he needed to leave for his own safety. And Paul, just like Peter or Jonah or Job or us, Paul argues with God. And despite his pushback, God makes it clear that he is to move on for the mission of the church. It's not that God was afraid that Paul would lose his life because, spoiler alert, he eventually does. It's not that God was afraid that Paul would lose his life. It was a timing issue. Jesus himself knew his own path led him to the cross long before he got there, but there were still times when he left Jerusalem to get away from his enemies or he went out from those who were trying to capture him because as the text says in the Gospels again and again, my time has not yet come. God's plan for the church that he's building is better than yours or mine or even Paul's. Who's been a part of a church split? Yeah, that's a gory, ugly, gross, sad affair. And sometimes they happen because of toxic leadership. And they might happen due to moral failure or scandal. They've happened because of shifting denominational focus or splinter factions form within the body. And I'm convinced that the root cause of nine-tenths of them 
happen because some leader or group doesn't actually believe that God's plan is better. Like Paul here, it takes him a minute to be convinced. Some of us don't get convinced. But God has been at work building his church, establishing a people for his own possession since the beginning of time. God is a master architect and we are his work of art. I pray that CPC as a local representation of the universal body of Christ would follow what we see here from Paul's history. That we would trust in the Lord. Paul was in the temple seeking the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him verbally where today he speaks through his written word to us. And Paul took the time to listen, to think, to discuss, and to pray. And when it was clear what the Lord expected of him, Paul trusted him and acted out of trust. He left, and he reached the nations. God knows exactly what he's doing. It's an act of trust in the Lord to learn the language of our land, of its cultures, and to speak the gospel in ways intelligible to the many cultures surrounding us. And in committing ourselves to the time and diligence it takes to be embedded in a place, we are saying to God, Lord, use me and do what you've promised. Build your church and be a light to the nations as you shine through me. It's also an act of trust in the Lord to believe minute by minute and to live moment by moment that you are united to God by grace through faith in Christ. The women and men who can maintain a union with Christ mindset are kept humble and made bold. Humble because you recognize your standing is only in Christ and bold because you know he is risen and you've been set free in him. May this be true of each of us and of our church as a whole. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me?